Divine providence. Um, I have from time to time mentioned this topic. It's uh, one that has brought great joy to me. And I believe that um, it's a topic that uh, has comforted me, has reassured me, especially in times of distress. There is no truth that is more endearing to the heart than this one. It causes us to worship and we stop to think about God's providence. Now before we deal with this topic, I believe it's fitting that we at least define this doctrine, this word providence. It may sound familiar to some and new to others. I know many of us know Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, and maybe, in, maybe we visited the city and, and um, there's also a Providence in Utah, I think. Providence, Rhode Island, interestingly enough, was founded by a Puritan minister. And he did it in tribute to God's providence. And the name still stays. And if you were to read, for example, many of the documents, the early documents of the founding fathers of the USA, you will read this word repeatedly, providence, and how providence has led us to this place and so forth. So what is providence? Well, if you look at point one of chapter five of the 1689 Confession of Faith, and I'll read, it says this, there are several points, but I'll just read point one. God, the creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now, that may be a mouthful, especially when you just listen to it. You have to read it over and over. In short, providence is God's unbroken and perfect governance over all his creation, all of it. In particular, providence is God unfolding his perfect will throughout the ages while tenderly and wisely caring for his creation, showering both those who are just and the unjust with his goodness. For he sends his son to shine on the just and on the unjust and rains upon the just and on the unjust. Now this doctrine of divine providence, God's unbroken and un, uh, imperfect rather, care over all his creation clashes with contemporary world views. Um, many today feel that there is no God. Others believe there is a God, but who knows who he is or what he is doing. That God is not at all interested in this world, that he has abandoned that's deism, that he's just there. God, somewhere he is there, but he just created the world and everything manages on its own. There are many scientists who are right now turning their backs on Darwinism 
and are accepting intelligent design, but yet they don't believe in a natural God that is involved in the affairs of this world. You came across the heresy of Gnosticism as you went through the series in 1 John. The Gnostics were those who believed that um, the supreme God of this universe is not involved at all in the affairs of this world because the material world is evil. God is detached, they would claim, from this world, completely detached. God is removed and uninvolved in the affairs of everyday life. That's what the Gnostics believe. And many, they don't claim to be Gnostics, they don't define themselves as such, but believe in that. But God's Word says the contrary, and this is where providence comes in. God's Word says that God is intimately involved in the affairs of the world. He is not removed from us. He is not uninvolved. He is not detached, but rather intimately involved in every detail, both the good and the bad. He is not the author of the bad, but he is involved. Keep that in mind. It's very important to understand that. And whatever impacts his creation, he is intimately involved. From the moment God created this world to the very moment he will usher in a new creation, a new world, a new heaven, he will always be and always has been involved in every single detail, overseeing every single molecule. There are no random molecules. In every single corner of this universe, God is present. Nothing, absolutely nothing, escapes his attention and his loving care. Now, some struggle with that because they say, wow, my life has a lot of bad in it. And I don't understand where God is. We will come to that eventually. But keep in mind that often we may think that something is bad only later on to discover that it wasn't as bad that we saw it as or that we defined it as such. And we will see that out of that bad, something good came out of it. So God is wise. God is not going to be impacted by fleeting emotions or by uh, the fact that we could be capricious with him. Okay, forget it. I'm not going to believe in the Bible. Forget it. I'm not going to worship. Forget this. If God does not answer my prayer, there is no God. And there are many that have turned their backs on their idea. Not that they actually knew God, but their idea of God. Because they couldn't come to terms with the fact that God is all good, all powerful, all loving, while there is so much bad and evil going about in this world. Today we're going to look at divine providence and how this truth plays out in a micro setting. That micro setting is the nation of Israel. Israel helps us to understand how, the way God deals with this people, his nation, his, uh, his, uh, uh, his, this country of people that he chose. We see how God deals with them and we understand providence. We'll stop to consider divine providence on display in God's dealing with his people. And we will see Israel's reaction to God's providence. So first, God providentially condescends to make himself known. Now, condescension today is a negative word, but it just simply means here that he stoops down, all right? That he makes this effort of stooping down to make himself known. 
There's no question that God is above all his creation. There is nothing in the universe that is, can say, this is like God. Nothing can make that claim. In fact, in Psalm 145, we read, Great is the Lord, highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, the bottom of the ocean is unsearchable. Space is unsearchable. But God is even for, far more unsearchable than these combined. Again, the prophet Isaiah, in reference to God's greatness, says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? And then he mentions the idols of the nations. Today we have our own idols. Technology, science are our idols. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. So we seek idols that do not totter, that are stable. And we think science and technologies are quite stable. But they're relatively new gods. They're relatively new idols. But notice what the prophet says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, so what we see in this passage is that God, who is unseen, sits on the circle of the earth and cannot be compared to anything. He is incomparable, indescribable. He is unequaled and unsurpassed. Right? He is God. And everyone else are just like grasshoppers. In other words, we can be compared to what? Grasshoppers. That's, what we're, that's the comparison. There is a comparison for man. Grasshoppers. There is no comparison for God. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying God is incomparable. We are like grasshoppers. And he sits on the circle of this earth. In other words, this whole world is under his watchful eye. He reigns. He is king. This is what um, the prophet Isaiah is saying. Um, John tells us the words of Jesus where he says, No one has seen God at any time, therefore again, inaccessible. God, the only Son, who is in the arms, or in the bosom, another version says, of the Father, he has explained him. Now, God is unknowable. Again, writing to Timothy, Paul says, God who alone possesses immortality and dwells in un, or rather, un, yes, unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So God is inaccessible. God is above everything. He is transcendent. He's above everything. That's what the word transcendent means. So from these few verses, God is both indescribable and inaccessible. And humanity, like a bunch of grasshoppers, moves about this world thinking that we can save it, that we're in control, that we can determine our future. And God just beholds all of this. And at the end, we all have to stand before him. Mankind remains in the dark as to who he is, as to what he does. Who is this God? This puts all of us in a clear disadvantage. 
How can we know God? We can't unless he makes himself known. Unless he opens our eyes to see and opens our ears to hear. He must condescend. He must stoop down. Otherwise, there is no way for us to know him. And this is what we discover in God's dealings with Israel. He made himself known to them. This transcendent, this glorious being, this creator of the universe, who has no equal, who is unsurpassed in glory. Not even the angels can be compared to him. Not one, nothing. This unique God has to make himself known. And this is what he does. For We read in verse 1 of our original text, Go in, Moses says, take possession of the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. God swearing to grasshoppers. God making an oath to insignificant individuals. Why? Why did he swear to these forefathers? Now, who are the forefathers? It refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every Jew knows who the forefathers are. We may have difficulty understanding it, but that's what it is. The forefathers of Israel were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The three men that God chose to reveal himself to for the sake of building a nation through whom eventually would come out the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, God made an oath. Why would God make an oath? That's so humbling, promising. In fact, it says in, in the letter of Hebrews that he, with an upraised hand, imagine God in heaven raising his hand, and the angels are looking at this. Why is he doing this? Raising his hands to insignificant individuals so that everyone would know that God had made an oath. That is remarkable. Why? Because God is merciful. God stoops to the lowest of creatures who are undeserving, rebellious at heart, unwilling to listen, and he makes an oath, drawing three men who were sinners, idol worshippers. That's what Abraham was when he was living in Ur of Chaldea. He draws him out of that place, takes him out of his country, and brings him in a land he never knew, made a promise to him. He reveals himself to them. That's what Moses is saying. You have now this opportunity to take this land because God in his mercy made up oath. He promised this people, your, your people, Israel, God providentially, there's the word, providence, condescended himself to make known his promise and then carries out his promise, even after they die. Now, who does that? Who carries out a promise after someone dies? You make an agreement with someone that binds you. While he's living, that agreement still is valid. Once he dies, then what? Are you still obligated to that agreement? Is God still obligated? He makes himself obligated. It's remarkable. It's all part of providence. That's the first thing. So he condescended to make himself known. He stooped down to make himself known. Secondly, Moses says that God also challenged Israel during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Verse 2 says, you shall remember. Notice this. You shall, you're going to keep reminding yourself of this. What? 
all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you, putting you to the test to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God challenged his people, Israel, for 40 years during the wilderness wanderings, testing them over and over. That's what Moses is reminding them. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy is the final words of Moses. Right? He is speaking to the people. He even expresses his anger with them because he holds them responsible for them um, prohibiting him or making him lose it, <laughs> if you would, and uh, prohibiting him from entering the promised land. He tells them repeatedly, because of you, I'm not going in. He reminds them of that as well. So it's, it's, it's his personal words to God's people. And here he's telling them, you will remember this point. You're going to remember the tests. You're going to remember the trials of your life. Don't forget them. They're important. Now, there's a difference between a trial and a temptation. Uh, you can say there, there are two sides of the same coin. On one side, you have tests. On the other side of the coin, you have temptation. Satan is the tempter. God never tempts, as we are told in James chapter 1, verse 13. He cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. God does not. Now, God oversees temptations when they happen in our lives, but he's never the author of that temptation. But the focus today is on testing. For 40 years during their wilderness wanderings, God tested Israel. And there are several reasons that are here revealed as to why God tests his people. First, he humbled them. Right? What does it mean to humble someone? Well, it means that he loves them. God only humbles those he loves. Right? He humbled Job. He humbled David. He humbled Joseph. Everyone that God loves, there's always a humbling process involved. And we should never be afraid of being humbled. In fact, if it's happening in our lives, we should be grateful. I've often said to the Lord, Lord, uh, do humble me for your sake. Now, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm afraid of praying that prayer. I'll be frank with you. But other times I feel emboldened to pray it. And when I do pray it, I pray it because I know it's scriptural. But other times I'm afraid. Why am I afraid? Because we are wired for self-preservation. But when God does humble us, he always does it so that we become dependent on him. Because arrogance makes us independent. It causes us to pull away and to think that the answers to life's questions are found within. But when we are humbled, we are then prone to turn to God, right? When we feel that we cannot handle what is going on in our lives. So he humbled them. The second reason why is that it reveals what is in our hearts, Notice it says exactly that. Putting you to the test to know what was in your heart. Now, God knows what's in our hearts. He is the reader of every heart. He's intimately acquainted with us, as it says in Psalm 139. Before we even say a word, God knows it all together. The thoughts of our minds. He's aware of what we think and our deepest desires and our fears. Whatever is going on in our lives, God is aware. But it's we don't know what is in our hearts. So that test causes whatever is in our hearts to come out. So God providentially 
brings tests into our lives, as he did with Israel, to humble us on one hand, and then to expose what is in our hearts. So when we're going through a test, fear may come out. Anger may come out. Uh, the fact that we are control freaks and we can't control the situation and we become angry because this situation is out of our control. And so therefore, the fact that we are um, enamored with control comes out. Now I know all of this because these are the things that, has hap- that have happened in my life. So God exposes uh, whatever, the pride is in our hearts the anger, all the stuff that doesn't belong. Therefore, the dross comes to the surface so that we can now repent of it, ask God to cleanse us, ask God to wash us and make us new. Now, remember, when that test comes into your life, it doesn't mean that there's any sin actually present. Job was tested. There was no, he was a man who feared the Lord the most. He hated evil and There was no one on the face of the earth like Job when it came to obeying God. It says it very clearly in the first chapters, in the first opening verses of Job. And yet, God tested him. So it doesn't mean that there's necessarily sin. And the church may go through a test at times. The church may find itself in periods of testing. And how we handle that test is very important. The church of Corinth went through the test of division. And Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, said, it is necessary that there's division among you so that those who are proven can shine and be known. Why? Because a person who is proven, who is mature, will handle himself differently in when a test of division hits a church. There are such tests. There are many tests. Paul speaks of, for example, this test that would afflict him deeply. He speaks about it to the church of Corinth again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. So he's away. He's removed from this church. He loves this church. He was used by God to be the founding apostle of this church. And I may be found by you to be not what you wish. So what is he saying? I'm not going to find you as I would love to find you as I'm hoping to find you, and I, you will find that I'm not going to be what you would like me to be. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, selfishness, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. So this is what's happening in the church of Corinth. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humble me or humiliate me, says the NESB, before you. So, God was humbling Paul. How was he humbling Paul? He was humbling Paul by by bringing him into the church that he had founded with such care, with prayers and with tears, and had fed this church diligently, only to find out that there's strife and anger and immorality and slander and gossip and disturbances. And so that test was a severe test. It was a deep affliction for the Apostle Paul. Tests come in many shapes, but all of them are directed by God. For Joseph, the test was triggered by his brother's hatred for him. For Abraham, it involved the painful decision of giving up his only son that he had in his care at that time. 
For Job, it was the unexplainable silence while he was enduring unbearable loss. Tests come. And you may be going through a test right now in your home. It could be financial. It could be marital. It could be any other way. You may feel very lonely. And there are tests that hit us. And God allows these tests. But never for the purpose of abandoning us or because he delights in causing us grief and sees us, uh, he sees some joy in seeing us in pain. There's none of that. It's to learn dependency on him. It is to expose what's in our hearts. And the third reason, of course, is to remove the dross from the gold, which is our faith. Peter, we went through this. Peter likens our faith to the gold that perishes. And it's more precious, he goes, than that gold. And our faith needs to be stretched and purified. And God does it through tests. And so when Moses is telling Israel that the test God sent their way humbled them and revealed what was in their hearts, Israel at that moment should have stopped and bowed their head. They should have thanked God for these tests. They should have said how grateful we are that you tested us during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. We don't enjoy tests. But Moses reminds them that God had chosen to reveal himself to them and part of that condescension on God's behalf is to bring us through tests so that we can become the people that he desires us to be. Notice what it says. Again, Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 2 to 5. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. Great trials. That's another word for tests. Great trials which your eyes have seen. In other words, Israel experienced these tests, these trials. These great signs and wonders. And then he adds these words, which are sobering words. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. That's sad. Imagine going through several tests, and the Lord bringing you through these tests so that you would learn dependency on him. He humbles you so that he would reveal what's in your heart and you would confess it so that you would become in faith stronger and the dross is removed from your faith. You become dependent on God and you trust him more fully. And instead, what happens? Eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, a heart that doesn't know. That's what happened to Israel. That was so devastating. What words for Moses to say to his people. God wanted them to see that the rebellion and their unbelief were deep-seated in them. And they had to confess it. And only Joshua and Caleb paid attention. It is very easy to become proudful. I can imagine people in Israel at that time saying, we are God's people. We are the elect. We're the chosen ones. We're blessed by God. Look at what he's doing for us. Look at what he's giving us. We are special. Instead of saying, why, O oh Lord, are you being so merciful? Because we are just like everyone else. We are undeserving. We're sinners, and you're so merciful to us. 
when we drive down the streets and we see people and we ask ourselves, Lord, why did you speak to me? Why have you revealed yourself to me and you haven't revealed yourself to others? Why is that? I don't understand it. I don't understand why I've been the recipient of your grace, that you've loved me, and then the others, they don't know you. You are to know in your heart, as it says in verse 5 of the original text that we read, that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And here's the ultimate reason why the Lord sends tests. The ultimate reason is our holiness, our growth in Christ-likeness. God took this people out of the furnace in Egypt, out of under, from under the tyranny of Pharaoh, brings them through the wilderness, and was disciplining them, preparing them before he ushers them into the promised land. Disciplining, training them so they would become godly people. Of course, I am always amazed with God's patience and God's endurance when it comes to training. And many times, the end result is not there. With Israel, it was not there. And you see this happening over and over, and God is merciful, and he knows the end from the beginning, and yet he doesn't stop. What an amazing God. He is providential in the way he challenges his people. So God providentially brings about these tests to shape his people into a godly nation. But it was short-lived. For this reason, we are reminded to rejoice when tests come into our lives. Because not only do they make us dependent on him as they humble us, not only do they reveal what's inside of us, not only are we learning that God is disciplining us as a father disciplines a son, but we are learning the ultimate reason is that he's making us a holy people. As James tells us in chapter 1, consider all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Rejoice in that. I'll be frank with you, there have been times I did not rejoice through a trial. There have been times, in fact, my first reaction is, Lord, what is happening? And it takes me a while to kick in and start rejoicing. I don't rejoice right away. But whenever I have rejoiced, it has brought a great deal of freedom. In that trial, we must learn to rejoice. And it doesn't mean we're not experiencing pain. It doesn't mean that we're not suffering we can rejoice in pain. We can rejoice in suffering. We can rejoice with tears. We can sing and praise our God. And that's the difference between the church and those who don't know the Lord. We can sing to our God with tears streaming down our cheeks and tell him how great he is even in this trial. Right? That's what Horatio Spafford teaches us as he composed that wonderful song, When Peace Like a River Attendeth. My ways, when, so, when sorrows like sea billows roll. That's what he teaches us. You can sing. You can rejoice in spite of what you're going through. Tests are a gift from divine providence. They're designed by God, and we are encouraged to receive them as precious gifts from his hand. Three, God providentially cares for his people. Verse 3 says, he fed you with the manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And then in verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, 
nor did your feet swell these 40 years. I wonder how many actually stopped to think about that. Two million people. He's talking to them. And, he's, and I wonder how many said, I warned, that's true. I've been wearing this for 40 years. And then he must have looked at their sandals and said, that's right, he's right. I've never had to change or replace my footwear. In his providence, we've seen how God condescends to make himself known. He challenges his people with tests so that he can stretch their faith, he can purify them and make them a holy nation. And then also we see that he cares for them intimately. This is a beautiful truth to meditate, especially in a time when the future is so uncertain and the, where you have access to information like never before. And um, we get to know about what's going on in this world and we are many times troubled and left in angst because of what is happening. But when you think about God's providence, you don't have to worry. While God was taking care of his people, these two million people wandering in the wilderness, things were going on around the world at that time. The Moabites were having their issues and the Amalekites and the Philistines and, and the Ammonites and everyone else were having their issues around them. And, you know, Israel could have said, well, let's see what's happening amongst the Philistines and let's see what's happening amongst the Amal Amalekites. They, they, they didn't, it, didn't let, it didn't bother them because they didn't have access to that information. God knew what was happening. But God wanted them to dwell on this thought, I'm taking care of you. I will never forget you. Right? I've etched you in the palm of my hand. You're precious to me. Moses repeats this attention that God has toward his people, again in Deuteronomy 29, when he says, I've led you in the wilderness for 40 years. Your clothes have not worn out on you, your sandal has not worn out on your foot. God took care of his people. Providence. But they didn't notice that. Imagine them in their tents grumbling because they didn't have onions. I miss those onions. And I understand. I tried onions that I've never tasted before when I was in Italy. My wife flipped. She had to take my onion too. Onions from Tropeo. They're amazing onions. They're, they make ice cream with it. Really, I, I never <laughs> can't believe it, but that's what they do because they're so delicious. They're unique. So maybe they had these kind of onions. I miss those watermelons. And they were thinking about going back to Egypt. They were conspiring to get rid of God's servant Moses. There were people who actually banded together the Reubenites. Well, they came together under Korah and they were going to just get rid of Moses and Aaron as well. While you're at it, they're brothers. And there's going to be a new leadership. And what does God do while this is happening? He gives them manna morning after morning. Isn't that something? He still provides. He still takes care of their garments. He still takes care of their footwear. He takes care of them. While they were conspiring to do something, while they were <coughs> murmuring and had grievances with the leadership, they were saying, my goodness, we have a plan. 
God still took care of them. Providence. That's God's providence. Did God's people deserve such goodness from his hand? No. He is such a merciful God, isn't he? What a wonderful God. Jesus reminded his disciples of their heavenly Father's tender, loving care when he said these words that we know and we've heard many times. Are two sparrows not sold for an asarian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father not being attentive to it. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not fear, you are more valuable than a great number of sparrows. Matthew 10, 29. What was Jesus underscoring when he said this? God's tender mercies in his providential care. Now often we fail to acknowledge uh, God's providential care, especially when we're praying about something specific. So let's imagine we're vexed by something. We're really disturbed. There's things not going right in our home. There's things not going right in our marriage. There's things not going right with our children. Whatever, finances, you name it. The things not going right sometimes in the church. And so you're praying, oh Lord, please help us. Lord, and we're praying for God to intervene, to do something, and we are oblivious to his providential care. Just like the Israelites. Because we're vexed, we're disturbed, we're bothered by something. And whatever is disturbing us is taking up thought and it's taking up energy and we're trying to fight and trying to change the circumstances. The circumstances, we don't know what to do. And yet what we need to do in those moments when we feel overwhelmed and when we feel that the trial is far too big and we're being vexed and disturbed by the situation, we need to do what David did in Psalm 103 when he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget his benefits. I've done this. At times I felt overwhelmed with the situation. And I would turn to God and say, Lord, right now I need to bless your name. Please bring to my memory the wonderful things that you've done. Please remind me right now of all the good that you have done. On my behalf, not because I deserved it, but because you're such a good God. And as I praise you, let me overcome this moment that I feel so overwhelmed with. Do not forget any of his benefits, who pardons all your guilt, he heals all your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit, he crowns you with favor and compassion, he satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isn't that a wonderful God? So while you're being severely tried and you feel overwhelmed, stop and consider his providential care. The challenge, the task comes from him. He stooped down to make himself known to you and he cares for you. He cares for his people. And lastly, we see God's, how he providentially communicate, communicates rather his word to his people. Verse 3 says, in order to make you understand that man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. What a powerful, powerful verse. We all remember how that moment when the Lord was severely tested during his 40 days in the wilderness he said these very words to Satan. He answered back by saying, 
that man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Someone rightfully said, and I forget who, I didn't quote, I didn't note down the name, if indeed we live by God's word alone, then it must be true that we die by bread alone. Think about it. If I live for greater acquisition, more wealth, a bigger house, a bigger car, whatever it may be, if I live for these things, if I'm obsessed with these things, I will die. I will die. I remember at the beginning of our ministry, we struggled a lot financially, and we didn't make anyone, uh, we didn't let anyone know, rather, about our situation. My wife wasn't working yet, and I was working alone, and my salary was very meager. And I remember my wife looking at me and goes, honey, how are we going to make it with this? We, we can't. And I remember praying this prayer. The Lord reminded me of this, not too many days, not too long ago. And I, this is I, how I prayed. Lord, from my calculations, I think we need about $40,000 a year. We can make it. So I'm leaving it up to you to take care of this. 40000 <laughs> The Lord has given us far more than that. I just asked for 40 <laughs> because I just wanted to be able to do ministry and provide for my home. The Lord has given us far more over the years. If you trust him, when that test comes, financial test, he will tell you that his word is your riches. Don't worry about the fact that you can't handle it financially. Trust him. God providentially condescends to make himself known. He providentially challenges his people with tests to purify them, to humble them so that they would become a godly people. God providentially cares for his people while they don't know in caring for them and making sure that we have our basic needs. And finally, God providentially communicates his word to his people. That's our wealth, the word of God. And the more it dwells richly in our hearts, the more we understand what men have said in the past. Like the psalmist in 119, when he realizes that God's word is his comfort. I was just reading that just before the gathering about how in his affliction, the word of God was his comfort. Imagine being afflicted. Imagine being in something really horrible and finding refuge in God's word. We are rich because of God's word. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word was with me. Or, as NASB says, it has revived me. His word is our nourishment. Job says, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We all need to live. We all need to eat. Well, for Job, his, God's word became even more precious than his daily portion of food. His word is our light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. His word gives us life. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. And for this reason, Jesus said to those who were following him, these words, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Throughout this week, ponder on the privileges that we have because of divine providence. Let these truths sink deep within. Let them cause you to praise him. 
meditate on this passage that we just read. We're going to continue on this theme for the next few weeks and allow God's word to enlighten us in regards to his perfect, unfailing providence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to seeing you face to face and seeing this Savior who was sent to us providentially by you. You did so much for Israel, and we learn so many lessons for all the things they went through are given for our instruction so that we can read about their uh, situations, their history, and then learn about your dealings with your people. But you have given us far more than you gave the people of Israel then. You've given us your, save, your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is beyond incomprehensible. In divine providence, you've given us a Savior that would save us from our sins. Why would you do such a thing? The more we consider these truths, and the more, Lord, we are filled with awe. We want to praise you for such a gift. And there may be some here today who do not know you as their Savior. And they may be questioning your goodness. They may be questioning your ways. They may be going through so many personal struggles, and these words don't mean much to them. Reveal yourself to them as you condescended toward your people Israel, and as you've condescended toward many of us and how you revealed your grace to us, reveal your grace to these as well. Draw people to yourself who are still in darkness. May they come to know Jesus as Savior. And may these truths become reality for them as well. Pray for those who are struggling with trials, Lord. and They're going through a hard time. They're being vexed and overwhelmed with whatever situation that is in their life right now, grant them grace so that they will accept the humbling hand of God. They will accept your hand of discipline. They will acknowledge that you take care of them and treasure your word above all else. We pray this for every one of your children, for our church here, for those who will be following online. This we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.